You're listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast, your home for the best of science fiction and fantasy with a twist. Whether you prefer your stories with dragons or aliens, your beverages shaken or stirred, fill your glass, relax, and join the conversation with your hosts, sci-fi and fantasy authors and proud tipsy nerds, Natalie Wright and R.S. Dabney. Welcome, tipsy nerds, book lovers, dwarves, elves, hobbits, Middle Earth dwellers to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club podcast. I am Natalie Wright, one of your hosts, along with me as always is my incredible world traveler co-host, Robin Dabney. Hello, Robin. Hi, Natalie. How are you today? I am doing extremely well. Robin and I have uh, had a little rest and relaxation after season one. Both of us had some trips abroad. Robin, uh, much more adventurous than myself, but uh, we hope you all uh, enjoyed following along with our with our travels on our social media. Are you feeling rested, Robin, rejuvenated, or like more tired than before you set out? Like something to understand about me and my family is I was brought up where a vacation is not something you come back rested from. <laughs> a vacation is like something that if you're not more tired, sore, stronger, uh, in better shape than when you left, you're wrong. <laughs> and so, um, you know, for me, I am, yeah, not rested, but happy, <laughs> fulfilled. And, and I'm like, I'm like the hedonist travelers, you know, right? Like if I don't come back drunker, fatter, having had many excellent meals and, and cocktails, then it wasn't a vacay for me. So to each their own. We've we've both had, I think, a trip that that matches both of our personalities and our yeah. I, I envy yours. You know, <laughs> I feel like it's not a bad thing. Like, and I envy yours. I feel like there's some good in that for sure. Yeah. I do walk a lot, you know, to go from eating whole to drinking whole to maybe a Absolutely. museum and back again. So there's walking yeah. involved. There's also just a lot of eating and drinking along the way. So there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good vacation. So we are so excited though. We're back and we're starting out big with Robin's favorite. You all know that if you're listeners to the show and uh, one of my new favorites, because I hadn't actually read it before. We're talking about the Lord of the Rings, of course, the, and we're concentrating on the Fellowship of the Ring the first book in the trilogy by none other than J.R.R. Tolkien, first published in July of 1954. So this is, uh, you know, we're getting on some years there. And yeah, Robin, so this is like one of your all-time favorites, right? It is. I So I was first introduced to Tolkien when I was probably seven or eight. My dad, when we were little, used to read to us every night. And as we got older, he would read bigger books. And he started with The Hobbit for us. And The Hobbit was like my first introduction to, I would say, epic fantasy of any kind. I had never read something with, or I had, but somehow it felt watered down. The Hobbit was this really colorful, five-dimensional story with these creatures I'd never heard of on this mission I'd never seen before to fight a dragon who was guarding gold. And it was the most epic story I'd ever heard in my life. And I think it completely changed the direction of my reading and my writing, I actually wrote some fan fiction, which I didn't know that's what it was called at the time, of The Hobbit. And I rewrote part of The Hobbit, but I gave Bilbo a wife named Bilboa, which is not creative. <laughs> 
and they had a son and they set out on the same journey, basically following these. They found the, the dwarves or the, uh, yeah, they found the dwarves. I, I rewrote this fan fiction and it was terrible. But after that, I was completely in love with Hobbits and Middle Earth. I, it's interesting. We, we talked to C.D. Tavenor once and he asked us this question about science fiction. Is there any world in science fiction that you would live in? or disappear into. And we all said, no, but Middle Earth, if someone came to me right now and said, you know, you have the option to stay here or go to Middle Earth, what would you do? I would leave right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I can't believe I've lived this many years and haven't read these books. For whatever reason, fantasy didn't really come into my world until I I was more a sci-fi fan and uh, reader, et cetera. And so I think I actually came to fantasy through video games. Interesting. Like playing Legend of Zelda back in the early 90s to mid 90s. Uh, That was like my first, uh, um, geez, what was it? Nintendo, I guess, right? Like the very first uh, Nintendo boxes that came out. But anyway, I, I would say I've been more of a fantasy fan via video games, um, a huge role-playing video game person. And I'm going to admit that the movies, when they came out, I watched them and they bored me to tears. Um, so I just thought I wouldn't like the book. Interesting. I The Lord of the Rings movies are one of the few like adaptations that I have absolutely loved. I actually rewatch the movies once every year. I watch all three of them. And you know, I can quote every line in the movie. I, I cry at all the same parts. Like I knew people who fell asleep in the movies and who thought they were so boring and I could never figure it out. (laughs) But it's interesting that, you know, you were one of those people as well, but you loved the books because the books are arguably fairly dry and tedious and slow at times. Um, (laughs) so that's, I, I, I I say that with full love. I'll get into that. Yeah. It's interesting that to hear that you, kind of went in reverse of where a lot of people go with that. Yeah. You know, I would say probably for me, one of the things with the movies, and we'll talk about the movies in another episode. We definitely want to dig into that. But for me, the movies, one of the things I dislike about some of the Star Wars movies, and I'm a huge Star Wars nut, is that I really dislike long scenes of CGI. A big, huge CGI battles that last for 15 minutes. I'm pretty much out with any of that always. Um, I just, I personally respond to humans on screen communicating with each other. You know what I'm saying? Like, absolutely. uh, So if, when it, when they depart from that, I'm pretty much out, but I wonder, and we'll have to see like what I like the movies better now that I read the books. So Yeah, but that's kind of where we're starting from, uh, listeners, is uh, me thinking, oh, no, you know, (laughs) I know Robin loves the series and I really hated these movies. Well, I like it. And I've only read the first book, but I would say that I am now a Lord of the Rings fan. I'm really taken with the world. And so I can see, Robin, your attraction to, you know, Middle Earth and to the Shire and the Land of the Elves and all of that. Yay, that makes me so happy. Yes, yay, <laughs> um, she didn't hate I, it, yay. I, yay. I don't have to divorce her as I Exactly, mean, exactly. As so before we get too far into it, I need to uh, share what we're drinking because I will yes. totally forget. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, so we are drinking a drink that I am calling Miravor, the Cordial of Imaldris. 
And basically, if you guys are fans of this story, you'll know that Miravor is a cordial. Um, in the books, it is described as a cordial. It's also mentioned in the Namari, a poem that Tolkien wrote in Elvish that describes it as a mead. We chose to go with the cordial for this drink because we haven't done any other mead drinks, but for some reason, mead seems like more of a, a drink we'll include in some other stories. So we're going to make this as a cordial. It's, let me pull up my ingredients. So it's got vodka in it. You could also use gin if you didn't want vodka. It has grapefruit, elderflower, cordial, sparkling water, and thyme. So it's really kind of a light, uh, fresh drink. And basically it's consumed throughout the fellowship and it's supposed to kind of give you some life energy and vigor. And we could not make a drink without it, basically. Yeah, here, here. Chin, chin. <laughs> chin, chin, yes. Yeah, and it just sounds like an elvish drink to me when you describe the ingredients, you know? It is elvish. Yes. It's definitely elvish. And that's what, it. when we were, when I was trying to figure out, you know, elderflower cordial, it's like elderflower. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds like it came straight from Rivendell. So <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, we'll pretend that it did. Yes. Yeah, it did. And so I love that. I, one of my questions is going to be what inspired you to the drink and you just answered that beautifully. So yeah, it's delicious. And uh, we do hope that uh, listeners will try it. We'll of course have the recipe up on the website and you'll be able to view all of Robin's amazing photographs of the drink on our media and website as well. So yummy. We're sipping that as we're talking about the Lord of the Rings, you know, Robin, I would have to, I wanted to ask you, so you told us when you first, like your father read to you The Hobbit yes. and you were a child when you came uh, to The Lord of the Rings, which as an aside, I read a little thing, Tolkien apparently was sort of like dismayed that like 10 year olds were reading his books and loved them. And I was like, really? I wonder why he was upset about that. Cause he, I know he, he wrote the Hobbit as more of a children's book and he wrote this to be an adult book. So why would he be upset with that? You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I will admit that after the Hobbit, I was pumped. I loved middle earth. I loved Tolkien. And my dad started reading us the Lord, the fellowship of the ring. So I'm eight years old. And after like 20 pages of prologue, exposition of on hobbits my little eight-year-old brain was like this is boring af right <laughs> so i actually didn't read the lord of the rings trilogy until i was an adult i was in my early 20s and so i went into middle earth and then i was like i'm not ready for lord of the rings the movies came out and i absolutely loved the movies and then i read the books actually after seeing the movies. And so, you know, I don't know why he would be dismayed that children would love kind of his whole setup. I mean, he's got elves and dragons and it's fairy tales kind of seem like they are written for children. This is obviously very much an adult story, but um, I think it also has appeal to any human being who, you know, exists and can understand um society and this struggle for good and evil. I have a, maybe an odd question for you. I'm not sure that I've seen this asked okay. anywhere. I, I know there's a lot of comparison of the Harry Potter to the Lord of the Rings. And I think those comparisons are apt. And and just, we both love Harry the Harry Potter series, like a lot. But here's my question. Is Harry Potter Lord of the Rings fan fiction? I don't think so. I think it's a totally 
different story. I think it draws on some of the same creatures and archetypes and all of that, but what story doesn't? Like even even Tolkien, who we kind of think of as like the father of modern fantasy, you know, his stuff was heavily inspired by like Norse mythology and Germanic literature and medieval literature. Like he didn't create dwarves and elves. Like he pulled that from somewhere. Even Gandalf, this is one of the really cool things I I think about the story. It's like the name Gandalf is actually another name for Odin, which is one of the Norse gods. And Odin in a lot of the Norse sagas is described as wearing a gray cape and a big hat. And so, you know, you could argue then that the Lord of the Rings is fan fiction for Norse mythology. And so, you know, of course there's going to be some things that these share in common. You're dealing with the really bad evil guy who sort of is you know, gathering armies to defeat good. But really, what story isn't like that that is kind of following this same plot line? So I don't know. I'm one of those in the camp that it's not Lord of the Rings fan fiction. Of course, it's inspired by it. But, you know, what isn't inspired by something that came before? Yeah, I think there's an apt comparison of the Lord of the Rings to the Odyssey, uh, Homer's Odyssey, which puts it, it you know, just generally into the category of the hero's journey or the hero quest or quest story. Star Wars is in that canon. Lord of the Rings is in that canon. The Odyssey, Harry Potter. What else? I'm sure we can name more. Yep. Uh, the Wheel of Time is in there. They're all sort of in that vein. I just, I, as I, you know, I've, it's been a little while since I've read, read Harry Potter, Um, but I, and this was a new reading for me of the Lord of the Rings, of the Fellowship of the Ring. I just, I I feel like you can't help but think that Gandalf the Grey and Dumbledore are almost the same person. There's the mirror. Is it Gadriel? She has the mirror that they look into. Yeah, Galadriel, yeah. But it's like the mirror of Aristad in the first uh, Harry Potter book. They're both chosen ones. They both, you know what I mean? It's just, I could probably, our, our listeners probably could get on our social media and tell us like way more, but it just, sometimes as I was reading it, I felt like, like, wow, uh, obviously this one came first, but I felt like I was reading sort of like an earlier version of Harry Potter. That's all. So yeah, probably yeah. not like true fan fiction, but the, the comparisons, for example, if you, when we get to the Wheel of Time, you're going to see a lot of comparisons, but I don't think you'd say, oh, this is like... Lord of the Rings fan fiction. You know what I mean? It's not like so like item for right. item a comparison. When I got Absolutely. to the mirror, that's where I was like, really? You're going to throw the mirror into? Okay. <laughs> you know? It's like, okay. We have hey, a mirror we've been writing all... for thousands of years. You know, we're out of ideas. We're out of new thoughts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we've got to recycle the mirror. I actually, in my, my series, I have a ring. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh my God, I have a, a heroine going on a journey with a ring. It's like, where do I get that? (laughs) So, no, it's this story, the Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and all of those, you know, they're modern day myths, basically. And why we connect to them, why Rowling was probably inspired by Tolkien and so on is that it's, you know, it's accessing something within us that we are, you know, more the same than different. And I feel like that is a big piece of the moral in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It also is, in Harry Potter too, you know, you have the muggles and the wizards and they're fighting for this like equality thing, basically. It, 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 you know, they're sharing these stories of these human experiences that connect us and, you know, good and evil. They both have that. The hero's journey, which you mentioned, you know, death and immortality, loss and farewell and courage and friendship. And so I think 
you know, there's a lot of parallels in that regard too, with the themes of both of those stories. I thought something that was, um, that really struck me as a theme that I don't, I don't necessarily know is, is, uh, hit on quite as much, but it struck me very much, especially when they get to the section later in the book, like as I said, the midway point forward where Frodo and his band are with the elves. And when they, mm-hmm. when they visit uh, the last elven place where they are, and I'm terrible with the name. So Robin, <laughs> uh, Yes. Yeah, thank you. They just like flow off of your lips. Like uh, you clearly have said them many times and I won't even try, but there's this whole theme, this idea that the something in the world is being lost, that there's something great that's being overtaken by the shadow. And I, I feel like in the first book, you're just getting the hint of what's to come. And I haven't read the other two. And although I saw the movies, I fell asleep probably partway through them. So I'm not sure I really remember. But you you get that sense that he's writing very, about, you know, this there's great beauty um, that's being lost to the world, that uh, magic and mystery is being lost, which I felt like I could relate to. I think that's a timeless thing where maybe uh, we often look at our past as being the golden era and the troubles of our current time, right? I mean, I think every generation feels this way, like, oh, it was so much better when we were younger or back then. And the troubles of our current time seem so overwhelming. And he was writing this obviously back in, you know, the 40s and 50s, but he felt that the way then, but we feel that way now and we'll probably feel that way 200 years from now. Uh, So I don't know. I thought that was very universal and really poignant in the book. I think that's one of the reasons why we love this story and why we keep reading it. One, it's that baseline kind of for modern fantasy, but it so heavily hits like almost to a cliched <laughs> like point, all of the big plot lines, storylines, archetypes that we need in a humanity story, in a good and evil story. And in and basically I would say that, you know, that is like what you described. There's um this beautiful good thing that the darkness is destroying, and that's black and white, good versus evil. And I think, you know, now the stories that they're telling are a lot more in shades of gray, where you have characters who aren't black and white there. They have these incredible arcs and journeys and, you know, none of the characters, I mean, they sort of do, but they don't have those big, you know, Jamie Lannister type arcs in the story, which now we love. There's something very simple and plain about the way the Lord of the Rings is told, but I think we can all relate to it really well on a basic level because it is that good versus evil and you can't help but root for the good characters in this and really care about invest in their journey. Well, I kind of wonder though, again, if, I mean, maybe the Lord of the Rings, like I found it comforting because it's clear that there is good and it's clear that there is evil. But also though, I think a big piece of it is temptation and you know, he is writing as a Catholic man, maybe with a more Christian bent, but that idea is not just Christian or just Catholic. It's a universal idea. The idea that we can be tempted yes. or swayed to gold, to power, to whatever, um, away from what we know is right. And I felt comfort in reading a book that is clear that there is right. There, yes. It, the shadow is not good. 
we yep. should aspire to the shadow. So I know I, I'm probably old fashioned in that way, but I liked the story for that. You know, I'm like, yes, you know, Frodo has his I, journey where he's tempted. And I actually, at the beginning, I was like, Frodo, okay, whatever. But by the end, I'm really liking Frodo because I'm seeing him go through a lot. And, and Frodo's a lot tougher in the books than he is in the movie. I feel like yeah. he's he, not that he's not tough in the movies, but it's like, he's always like rolling his eyes back and fainting and not that he doesn't <laughs> struggle in the book. He does, but he's not such a wimp in the stories, which, you know, I think is refreshing. <laughs> yeah. He's really, you really see him grow throughout this, the fellowship of the ring and have to stand strong against, I mean, he's carrying that goddamn ring in his pocket or around his neck. You know I mean? It's like, this is a thing that's tempting the best of them. Yeah. You know, Dumbledore, or Dumbledore, see, I'm doing it. Gandalf <laughs> has had to like struggle to, yeah. to not. And Galadriel. Yes. Yeah. She too is tempted by the ring. I and think saying, one of I the, can't, I can't possess it, you know? Yeah. I think one of the coolest things about this story too, is that Frodo and the Hobbit's, the characters he kind of picked as not, I mean, the heroes, there's lots of heroes in this story. Right. We'll say Frodo and Sam specifically are really unassuming heroes. And I think that's wonderful. They are not adventurous. They are not skilled in fighting. They are not even looking to do anything other than walk down to the pub for a pint. And suddenly they're cast out on this journey. And I think this is another reason it's so appealing is that it's anyone can be a hero and has it within themselves to be a hero. And I think for me as a child, when I got this story, it was like, oh my gosh, I can be anything. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah. accomplish anything. And I think that's another one of those, it, it's so drawing, it draws us in and is so comforting because it's that definitive good and evil, but it's also a really unassuming hero and group of heroes. And kind of a, a shift probably in the, I'm not an expert on pre-Tolkien fantasy literature by any means, but I think back to some of the classics that I studied in school and, you know, um, this is definitely a change from that, I think, right? Where in a lot of classics, you had the person that was like kind of born to be the hero, not in all of them, but in some, or that's, you know, in a lot of literature. And so, yeah, to cast an everyman or just, you know, sort of the everyday guy. And hobbits couldn't be more, they're not human, but he really imbued them with some of the most human-like qualities of any of them. Uh, yes. So they're very relatable. They're very relatable. Yeah. I, I did read yeah. somewhere, and I really liked this, that Tolkien actually considered Sam the true hero of the story. So he wrote this basically with two hero, hero's journeys going side by side, Frodo and Aragorn, who are both kind of traveling the hero's journey. But at the end of it all, after he was kind of like discussing it, he even considered Samwise Gamgee the hero, which I always have. And I know a lot of people do, but it was cool to see that Tolkien did too. Yeah, I, I think it's clear when, that he loved Sam, you know, as a character. I mean, yes, he, Sam is just invested with so much love in the writing of his character. I I love Sam pretty much right away. He leapt off the page to me as a fun and interesting character. Um, you know, and it's intriguing that, yes, he ends up being so heroic and so loyal to, which loyalty is, it feels to me like sometimes that's really missing in a lot of our modern culture. So it's interesting to see here we have this 
this little character. And I don't know that you can talk about the Lord of the Rings at this point without really talking about Tolkien and his life and how his life must have, you know, affected what he wrote and how he wrote it. Absolutely. And I I have not been able to see the Tolkien movie yet. I don't live near a theater. I think you have. Yeah, I have. Um, Okay, so yeah, we'll let you can dive into that that side of things. One thing that was interesting that I had kind of always thought growing up, but I learned is not the case, is that I'd always thought that World War II and Hitler and Nazi Germany were like kind of the baseline for what inspired this, that, you know, Hitler was Sauron and, you know, the Nazis were the orcs. But Tolkien has said time and time again that that is not the case. It was not inspired by World War II. So just wanted to throw that out there for anybody else who kind of was on the same page as I was a few years back. Yeah, I think that's sort of like something that people think. And, you know, I think you could read that into damn near any of these yeah. kinds of good versus evil literature because it's maybe life imitating art or art imitating life. I don't know. But I think you could say that about probably all, you know, like high fantasy with it deals with these these themes. But I think that seeing the Tolkien movie, first of all, I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful movie. And like I said, even if you're not a Tolkien fan, I just, it's a good movie. I think if you're a writer or a creative of any kind, I recommend it. But definitely the friendship of himself with his school buddies. Yeah. You can see that there, you know, there were the, his, you could almost see like Mary and Pippin and Sam and Frodo in the movie about Tolkien's life. And then also his time in the countryside, you could see how that would give rise to the Shire and uh, the kind of rural country way of life that the hobbits have on the Shire. You could definitely see that. And also maybe Tolkien's love of his life. Galadriel, one of the few women really in the in the book. I mean, there are women, but they're kind of peripheral, which some people criticize Tolkien for. And I'd say personally, I didn't really find a problem with it. I think it's a it's a story about men uh, on is. a man's journey. Um, yep. So I didn't have an issue with that. Galadriel seems to me like almost like the Virgin Mary or she's like, uh, you know, an angel. She's like an otherworldly kind of divine feminine character that I feel like, again, you can kind of see those sort of characters as an archetype going back many, many generations. And I enjoyed her. I enjoyed her as a character. and But you could almost see like we're talking maybe in the movie anyway, and it may not be true to his life at all. It seemed like he kind of put his love on a pedestal, you know, like she was too good almost for him, uh, too, too pure. Right. Yeah. He actually, Edith was the name of his love and his wife. And he, she actually inspired him kind of to write this story. He wrote about um, two characters named Baron and Luthien, a mortal man and an immortal elf who became lovers. And they sort of represented he and Edith. And those names, Baron and Luthien, are actually written on their tombs, which is kind of an interesting fact. But so he actually kind of wrote all of this history and all of this backstory. He created 15 elven languages, like before he even wrote the book. So he actually even wrote the book almost to fit his languages and this history he created. And one of the really, I love this kind of story that's lesser known about Tolkien. I don't know if this was in the movie or not, but he was a historian and he was a linguist more than he was a writer. And if you read these books, you can kind of see that at times. I don't mean to knock it again. I love it, but there are some slow, tedious, passive 
you know, voice issues in the book, but he had pages and pages of history and notes and languages. And he and C.S. Lewis were really good friends. And Tolkien actually was reading Middle Earth genealogies and appendixes to C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was the one who encouraged him to turn them into a novel, not just this world building for nothing, but actually create it into something. And so he took Baron and Luthien and, and added them to this history, to this genealogy, and then turned that into a work of fiction. So I always thought that was kind of an interesting thing about him and his friendship and where the, the novel side of it came from. Very cool. That, I love that. I, I didn't know that he and C.S. Lewis were friends, but you can kind of see how they might have influenced each other's work. You know, Definitely, yeah. He actually, Tolkien thought Narnia was kind of a cluttered, he wasn't a big fan of the Narnia world, <laughs> but I think Narnia is wonderful. So it's, it is what it is. But I, I always thought that was interesting how they kind of gave each other feedback and were friends and, you know, almost critique partners ish. Yeah. For me, the only part I didn't mind, like the history, the description, because again, I'm new to this world. So I'm reading yeah. it for the first time. I felt like I wanted him to describe those things to me because it really gave me the sense of, of, you know, where I was. The only thing that, that irritated me from time to time were the singing. And yeah. <laughs> I, I was switching back and forth between the audiobook and the written book and the audiobook, the guy's actually singing. And I'm like, oh my Lord. I mean, it was like some of them go <laughs> on and on and on. And I'm like, okay, fast forwarding through that, you know, like speed up. Um, and I don't surely I missed a lot by speeding through the songs. So there's some stuff that's, and like, you know, Tom Bombadil, it's like, okay. Yeah. Not that it wasn't enjoyable, but I mean, I kind of enjoyed it, but okay. What does this have to do with anything? Um, I think kind of like the green man. So I'm like, okay, here's the peg and green man in the story. That's fun. <laughs> but like, he's the green man. Like I've, I've read some things where like he was part of a story, like a short story or poem Tolkien had created before. And oh. when people ask Tolkien about like, what does Tom Bombadil mean? He doesn't really have a good answer. I think he just fell in love with a piece of his writing and put it in there. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what Tom Bombadil is because you read it and you're just like, this slows the story down for no apparent reason. It is nice and lyrical and lovely. I think one of the things that Tom Bombadil shows, because as a character, he's not affected by the ring at all. And I think he shows kind of this like, and he, he's always like happy and cheerful and joyous. I, don't, I think he's like this eternal optimist that's showing maybe somehow that like you can choose your attitude. You can choose how negativity affects you, but that's kind of obscure and off the wall. And maybe I'm reaching, maybe it boils down to the fact that Tolkien had created Bombadil before, liked him and was like, you know, I'm not going to kill this darling. So who knows? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I read it kind of differently. Um, because there's reference in the text to Tom Bombadil being older than any of them. It's like older than yes. the elves and they're long before. So that's why I felt like he really was like the green man, which is a pagan god of the forest. You know, the green man represents life. And yeah. I felt like Tom Bombadil was not actually a person at all. He's the embodiment of, of a god or the embodiment of a spirit and not really of man at all not of like middle earth you know what i'm saying like he's a part no, he, he, and he's he's not at all 
he's not, yeah, he's not part of Middle Earth. I think I'm just reaching for like, what is right. the point of having him in there and how do you? Well, he you helps know, he them comes escape, up. you know, like he, he helps them escape. So he serves that purpose because without him, they may have never made it past that, that part of the book or yeah. the story. So. He helps them a couple times. Yeah. So yeah, you just, you never have a discussion about the Lord of the Rings or the Fellowship of the Ring without Tom Bombadil coming up, especially since Peter Jackson chose to leave him out of the movie. I uh, think that's you wise. Know. <laughs> I do too. I think, you know, also the, the book starts and you have Bilbo's party and then Bilbo disappears. And then in the movie, it's like basically everything happens really quickly. But in the books, you know, 17 years pass before. Right. Gandalf comes back to Frodo. And then when they're escaping from the Shire to Bree and, you know, going through the Barrow Downs and Tom Bombadil, that all takes a long time yeah. versus in the book, it's like boom, boom, boom. Or in the movie, it's boom, 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 which again, you have to make those decisions. But I think for people who are like sitting there thinking, I've, I saw the movies, they're good. Should I read the book? I think some of what you're talking about, Natalie, with the descriptions and all of that, I think you should read the book still. Um, I think there's a lot in here. Well, there's that, so much character development that happens yes. from the point of, of, you know, page one to the point where maybe say they're in Rivendell. And one of the things that to me that does is I actually care about these little hobbits. Right. Um, and I, I'm not saying that in the movie I don't care, but I wouldn't say I care nearly as much about their safety and about, I also think that you understand a lot more about what this ring is what yeah. it's about and what's at stake um, yeah. on a much deeper level if you read the book, um, which is, you know, really cool. I mean, I enjoyed that quite a lot, getting more information about all of these characters. But, okay, Bilbo. All right. So, like, <laughs> here's a little bit of a grievance. Like, what the fuck up with Uncle Bilbo? Like, he knows this shit is bad that he's handing to Frodo, He's like, oh, here, here you go. Here's your inheritance, clink. Here's this piece of shit ring that's going to, like, you know, like, possibly destroy you. I mean, Interesting. Yeah, what is you know? up with that? It, again, it kind of reminds me sometimes, like, some criticism in Harry Potter where Dumbledore, like, knows the bad shit that Harry's going to have to go through. And it's just like, see ya. You know, good luck with that. And kind of shoves him into, into danger. It feels that way sometimes. But yeah. So like, what do you think, what's up with Bilbo? I don't know if that's just kind of like a convenient oversight in writing or if Bilbo maybe didn't actually fully understand the depth of how bad it was. Maybe right. there there wasn't, he, he didn't fully grasp what he was giving to Frodo because I can't imagine that he would have been like, here, you're going to have a really shitty time for the next few years and you're going to run so much and walk so much. You're going to be in the best shape of your life, but it's going to suck. Like, right. um, like, I, yeah, I, 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 my, in my mind, I'm thinking he was in a little bit of self-denial of, of how big, of how bad it was. Like, so how I think you, he was like, yeah, go ahead. Well, I didn't read the Hobbit, so I'm not, like intimately familiar with Bilbo as a character. I don't really have any allegiance to him. And having okay, just he's wonderful. read The Fellowship of the Ring, I'm like, I don't, I don't really care for him very much, to be honest, because I'm aligned now with Frodo. And I feel like yep. he's kind of like not really looking out for Frodo. Even when they get to Rivendell, it's almost like he has been turned by that ring a bit. And he's still kind of like 
do you have the ring? Do you have the ring? I don't know. And he's just kind of like, I just want to sit here and be comfortable. <laughs> like, well, back her off. <laughs> I think some of that was, so that's interesting because I, you know, I read The Hobbit first and then Lord of the Rings. And so when I got to Frodo, I was like, what? I want Bilbo. You should read The Hobbit because that's a phenomenal story and we should actually feature it on the show at some point. But I think Bilbo being like, where's the ring? Where's the ring? What that's showing is the, I think the corruption or the corruptible power, is corruptible a word? The corruptible power that the ring has. And I think that is one of the themes of the story is not just like the search for power, but how it corrupts and affects everybody involved. And I think that was really important for Tolkien to show was that, especially with Bilbo's character, that even when he's away from it, even when he's separated from it, he's like consumed by it. And then when it comes into his presence, it's like he can't even deal. And I think that was just to help show why this thing needed to be destroyed and why, you know, Boromir saying they should take it to Gondor to help men, why that's not going to work, why why keeping it around, why, you know, Isildur keeping it around and then being killed for it. And, you know, Smeagol killing the other, I can't think of Deagle, I think was the other hobbit's name to get it. It's just showing that there's no way to handle evil power in a way that anybody can manage it except Tom Bombadil. And so I think even Bilbo, who's this kind, he's been living with the elves, he still can't deal with it. And so I think that's just to heighten the reason why it has to be destroyed. Right. I I agree. Yeah. Did you reread it recently? And I wonder if you did. Does it, mm-hmm. does it stand the test of time for you? I think so. I think, you know, one of the interesting things about this story, again, I love it so much. I'll, I'll start it and I'll think, my God, this is tedious <laughs> and slow just with that opening. But I think a couple things here with this point, like the opening is slow and meandering a bit through the Shire and the Barrow Downs. Um, But I think what that does, and it sounds like it did for you too, is it makes you care about the world and the characters and the goodness in the world. And so by the end, and I'm jumping ahead, but like when Frodo and Sam are on Mount Doom and the others are facing the armies of Mordor, we like really care about the places that the darkness is going to destroy, even if they're far away and it won't touch them for years. Like I feel like, that world building that he does, that slow, steady world building makes you care. And again, rereading it. And we had some conversations with people at Publanicon about this. You know, the book isn't without its issues. The writing can be dry at times. There's someone brought to light that there's some hidden racism in it, which I'm not going to dive into in this conversation, but you know, there's lots of things you could argue with that. Um, There's kind of this black and white morality with no discussion of the in-between. But what I love about this story, every time I read it, every time I watch it, is that it's comforting. Like to me, I think because I came to it as a kid and I think a lot of us came to Middle Earth as children, it's comforting in this like nostalgic way. Like for me, it's like going to a family reunion or seeing old friends. Like I just like immediately feel at home. And I think also like, unlike a lot of fantasy stories, Tolkien gives like a lot of breaks and he gives lots of times of rest for the characters and moments of hope. And like, it's not always a hundred miles an hour. You get to pull back and somehow that, that hope in those moments of hope, I feel like build in you and make you feel like positive and like you're on this journey with them. And I think also the journey through Middle Earth, like it introduces us to each realm and its inhabitants, like over this journey. And so it's like, you start, you care about the Shire, you care about Rohan, you care about Lothlorien and Rivendell. And it feels like somehow he's built like the biggest fantasy world in existence because you do get to spend time in each of these places. And so for me, 
yeah, I think it stands the test of time because it will always feel those way to me or those ways to me. But I think it also just hits on like the fundamental things that we search for in a story. And anybody can like hone in on something that they connect with in this story or a character they connect with. We talk a lot about how we love stories where it takes, you know, people from all different um, parts of the world to come together to solve the problem. And you see this even in the fellowship, you know, there's no women or people of color, but uh, you have hobbits and a wizard and an elf and a dwarf and men. And it's like, it's going to take all of them to save the world. And again, for me, any story that requires people to come together, people of differing backgrounds, like to me, that is the greatest story that anyone can ever write. Yeah, I totally agree. I like, I think you can imagine the characters with any color skin, just as an aside. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure that he really says what color they are. So he doesn't. No, he doesn't. So if, um, if we've imagined them with pale skin, maybe it's the bias of the reader. That's a good point. So I don't know, but I, I agree with you. And interestingly, when you were talking, I was thinking, is this one of the things, though, that in modern fantasy or in modern books, sometimes we lose? OK, so as writers, Robin and I know that editors and agents are always saying, start out the action on the first page. The modern reader wants to have action on the first page. I'm not saying that that's not OK or that we shouldn't do that. But I have found that some books, they start with such big action at the very front end that like, I don't give a shit. What, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I don't care yet. Yep. So, and sometimes I think what readers of epic fantasy like is we like to meander through that world. Like I said, I play more role-playing games probably than, than I read epic fantasy, although I'm reading more for the show. But I like just getting on my horse and, you know, and riding across the different realms that I can go to in World of Warcraft or uh, Elder Scrolls or Skyrim, which as an aside, are all highly influenced by Lord of the Rings. Now I see that. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is pulled straight from Tolkien, you know? But like, that's one of the joys of it is getting to know all of those different lands and the peoples. And I think you're absolutely right, Robin. I mean, at the end, we really, why we care about him destroying that ring and all that it represents is because we now have been shown all of these different peoples and these places. And we, you know... We can't, I mean, like Tom Bombadil sitting there in the forest, in his section of the forest for yep. since time before. Um, what would happen to him? Is he completely immune? What about the people of Rivendell and uh, the Elven lands? I mean, we're told basically that they may be doomed either way. And, yep. you know, then you're like sad about it. It's like, I don't want that. Yep. And like, again, going back to like jumping off there, like, so, you know, with the elven lands, like the elves had the opportunity to escape. They were going to leave, go to the lands beyond. And this is another piece of the story again, that makes me just like, gives me goosebumps is, you know, even having, and this, I love this about the character development of the elves, let's say, but you know, they have a way out to avoid this and they make the decision, you know, to stay and fight and help. And that again, ticks that button of coming together and like setting aside your needs for like the needs of others. I think this story does that in so many ways so well. It's about sacrifice. And I think my favorite part 
of this story is Tolkien's like indomitable hope for a better world and like the importance of courage and friendship. And I, you know, I feel like for me, I can't read this story and not picture like all the challenges in my life as climbing Mount Doom and like all the people, my friends, my loved ones as being my Samwise Gamgee. And like when I, when I compare pieces of my life to that, it's like, you can't help but also think that there's good and there's hope and that like, that lightness will conquer the darkness. And I I think, again, that's one of my favorite parts is that hope is never really lost in this story. That's so true. Uh, Even at a point, right? So when they're um, with Galadriel and she's, and the boats are uh, going, you know, she's getting ready to say goodbye to them. They're in boats. They've been traveling a little ways, but they're getting ready to really be off of the Elven lands and go forth. And she gives them all the the gifts, which was remit for me. It was like, recalling my love of the wizard of Oz and like the, right, yeah. the favorite part is where like Tin Man gets his heart and yep. all of that. So, and when uh, the little dwarf, his name, I cannot remember. I'm uh, Gimli. Gimli. Thank you. When he wants her hair is also like, Oh my gosh, it's so poignant. Right. Cause he's been yep. really offended by the elves on the first instance coming into this land because they're not trusting him. And now he's proven himself and now he is humbled before her and her honesty and her beauty and everything about her. And he asks for her hair as a remembrance of her. It's like, oh, yeah. But all of them getting what they need or what they should have to move forward which is another piece uh, of the classic hero quest. Uh, the Absolutely. heroes always have to get that that magical object or that piece of something that's going to help them in their later journey. So they all get that from her. And then they go off on the final leg of their battle, at least in this book. Interesting, too, this book does not have... The arc for Frodo is not completed in this book. So... No. He is given the task of uh, destroying the ring, the one ring, but he doesn't accomplish that in this book. But would you say that he does have a completed arc of some kind in this book, that he does achieve something that gives him, you know, a feel of completion in this book? To an extent, I think, you know, if this if the Lord of the Rings trilogy feels different than other trilogies where each book kind of is its own story. I think it's because Tolkien initially wanted it to be one book. It was one giant story that the publisher then made him break into three. I think at one point, even he wanted it to be six, but, and so it's almost like one big story cut into three parts. And so if you're looking for some kind of resolution in the story, you won't get it. Not even kind of until book three. There's a few things that get wrapped up in two, but I think the journey, at least that we get, the arc we get for Frodo is going from really, again, being this kind of unassuming hobbit in the Shire to having to carry and deal with this horrific object of evil. You know, lots of things happen to him over this this journey, but in the end, it's like he... I'm sure most people listening to this have seen the movie or read the book, so I'm not really worried about spoilers. I think it's it's the growth story for Frodo. And at the end, he ends up leaving the fellowship with Sam to go off on their own because that's what's best. And I think we see in that moment a completed mini arc, at least, of Frodo going from kind of being just normal and not timid, but just normal in the Shire to having the gumption and the the courage to set off with this horrible burden almost alone 
Um, so you see this really big growth in his strength and courage, I think, just in book one alone. Yeah, it, I think that actually follows very much sort of an arc of a coming of age story. Yeah. One, one could almost look at him as at that moment he's accepting full adulthood, he's accepting full responsibility, which may be one of the reasons why uh, the Fellowship of the Ring appeals to younger people as much as it does, because it's in some respects, like, again, it's, uh, I mean, it, it wasn't written to be like a teen or coming of age story per se, but it, like Harry Potter, or, you know, I, I think Luke Skywalker falls into this too. He's young. He's got the coming of age story in Definitely. Um, A New Hope. So, which is a story that's very uh, dear to my heart. I love stories like that. I guess myself being perpetually a teacher <laughs> in my heart, you know, like perpetually an adolescent, not really wanting to grow up. I love those kinds of stories where I'm seeing, you know, characters accepting responsibility and facing things that are scary because I'm scared like all the time of everything, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, help uh, me. Uh, so, you know, seeing I, them, yeah, encouraged. That's like helpful to me. I can attest to that. I feel like this story like maybe keeps me in a perpetual state of, I don't know if it's adolescence or what, but like, I love this story so much. You know, I've already, I've like fangirled over at this whole conversation, but like I, I have a map of Middle Earth hanging over my desk. That's Aww. front and center. Um, I, you know, my husband and I, when we were going to get married, he's also a huge fan of this story. We, you know, we got online and we found like a movie replica of Narsil, which is the sword that Isildur used to cut off Sauron's, the ring on Sauron's finger in the first war. It's the this sword that was at Rivendell that was then reforged into Andriel, which is uh, Aragorn's sword. But, you know, we cut our wedding cake with a two-handed great sword that's now hanging on the wall. I have a Herogrim, which is Theoden's sword. I have a ring of power. It's like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm the perpetual, like, teenage Lord of the Rings fan. That's how much this story has affected me, is that even now I'm still, and, and I love all of those things. They make me feel somehow closer to Middle Earth. Yeah, I love that. And it's, I think that's so cute that you have the the map before you. I I have to say as a writer who writes epic fantasy, I'm really sort of glad that I didn't read this story before because it, I think it has kept me from being so significantly influenced by it. You know what I'm saying? So like, yep. because I think the tendency would be if I had read it, read it many times earlier and now trying to write an epic fantasy, I'd probably tend to want to copy, copy it copy him. Although having said that, I'm not sure that you can ever be free from that because this story has had such wide, massive influence on all fantasy literature, I think in the West. And then, you know, I guess we should probably say that this is definitely a Western story, not an Eastern story. And yeah. Asia has its own sort of epic, you know, uh, tropes and, uh, you know, li lineage to, to talk about, but um, you, you know, like, uh, I love the wheel of time and I, the wheel of time certainly comes out of this lineage. You can't help see the comparisons. So we, I don't think there's any escape from that probably, but yeah, I'm glad I read it now though. Yeah. And I, like, I hope you'll read the next two also. And Definitely. then I can't wait to talk about them because it is, and I think you're right because I know this is seeped into my writing and my work and, you know, that's okay. That's totally fine. But, but I, I've I read think, your work and I think it, you definitely don't. I yes. Mean, you're no, not I'm, like, I'm not. Yeah. No, I'm not writing fan fiction. Um, not anymore. I have already done that. <laughs> but yeah, it's like you almost can't help, uh, you know, either being inspired 
affected by it from a as a primary source or even a secondary because all these other works of fantasy are also taking from it and building upon it. And so, yeah, that's that's. I'm excited to read yours then to see the... <laughs> um, How much I'm trying not to do that. The, the fresh take. Yes, the yeah. fresh fantasy take. I'm excited for. I think it's a challenge for fantasy writers um, to take what is good about the Lord of the Rings, to take what is good about Tolkien's writing, um, mm-hmm. but challenge yourself to try not to fall into the same, what are now tropes to us, but it wasn't a trope, obviously, when he wrote it. But nope. I'm going to fangirl for a minute over the lines inscribed on the ring, on the inside of the ring that can only be seen like when Gandalf throws it into the fire and it's heated and then you see it, okay? Yep, yep. Not only is this poem epic, but it it really is the whole story. And I mm-hmm. find it fascinating. Of I, I love that. I just fangirl over that. So three rings for the elven kings under the sky, Seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. I mean, shit, that's so fucking good. It's it gives me goosebumps. I know, doesn't it? Like every time I hear it, I get goosebumps. That's so one thing you should also read, and anybody listening, you know, a lot of you have probably also read this or heard of it, but the Silmarillion is a story, not so much a story. It actually came out, it was compiled by his son Christopher after he died, but it's basically all of Tolkien's research and history, genealogy, language. It's like the like volume of the world building that led to this point, like, and it has, you know, the stories of basically everything that got to the place where the Lord of the Rings takes off. So you, I think you might really like it, Natalie. It's, you know, you want to talk about something that's a bit hard to get through, but it's, it's, if you love this world, you must read the Silmarillion. Be still my nerd heart, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) I'm just the kind of nerd that would do that. Like, oh, let's go read the genealogies, which genealogy actually is one of my passions in life. Um, So yeah, Yeah. I kind of, yeah, I have to maybe put that out there. I'm kind of a nerd that way. As an aside too, for writers in modern times, often editors and agents want to see what some call a log line in screenplay writing or your like 25 word summary, you know, like that one sentence that sums up your whole story and maybe a paragraph or a, you know, right. And this is often really hard for writers to do because especially if you're talking about a big epic story, maybe a trilogy or something, it can be difficult to get a grip on that. And the one thing about this poem about the one ring that really strikes me is I think it's Tolkien doing that, you know? Yeah in his own poetic, beautiful way, he's setting forth what his story is all about right there. And that is his guidepost. Um, I'm going to talk back to, you know, the left hand of darkness. And we talked about with uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. She knew exactly what she wanted to say. She has a central idea and the whole story revolves around it. Here, I'm again reminded of that and how strong writing is that. And again, I question, are we losing that in modern storytelling? Yeah, just a question to put out there. But writers, you know, you would do a lot worse than reading Lord of the Rings and Lursa Le Guin and, 
you know, just really paying attention to that central idea of your story and what the f- are you trying to say? I don't think yeah. there's nothing unclear about what Tolkien's trying to say. And I think that's good. Like yep. it should be clear you know, what you're trying to say and you should have something to say and we should know what it is and we can agree or disagree with it, but we should know what it is by the end. And I love that about this story. So I do too. And yeah. if anybody wants any additional information, like there's a really good essay that Tolkien wrote called on fairy stories that he wrote it in 1939. And if you are a Tolkien fan or just interested in something more with middle earth, I would really recommend you reading this, especially if you are a fantasy writer and we will actually, we'll post it on our social media pages for anybody who wants to read it. But it's a very fascinating read on kind of his thoughts on fantasy and on world building and all of that. So I would recommend anybody, especially writers to read his on fairy stories essay. Excellent. And we'll also put links to that stuff Yes, on our blog, on our website, tipsynerdsbookclub.com, so that you can go to that and we'll compile all of that there. And we'll have a little bit more about Tolkien. And then that you can go there too, or on our social media and add your own comments and share with us your love of Middle Earth. And we can continue the conversation. Robin, do you have a question for our listeners this week? Ooh, let's see. I have like so many questions about this story that now I'm like drawing a blank. <laughs> um, what is a good question? I don't know. Do you have one, Natalie? While I think of mine? Um, I guess a question I, I have just generally, it's not really specifically about the story, but I wonder if there are listeners out there who reading this book affected them in their life. I know it affects a lot of writers, inspires a lot of writers, but in terms of like the morals, the philosophy, the just anything else about it, was were you inspired by this story in any way? Did it change your life? Did it affect you? And I, if you did, I want to know about that and hear that story. I think that's fantastic. And I think, I guess what I would ask is, is specifically targeted to the kind of the super fans, I guess, but what is it about this story that keeps bringing you back, either watching the movies every year, rereading the books. For me, I said that it about it being comforting and all the different things like that. Like, what is it about this story that keeps it on that shelf of the best of the best for all of us? I'm curious to hear that. What are your favorite parts of this? What makes it stand the test of time, as you asked me? Yeah, I think it's a good question. As you said that, again, I'm huge a fan of Wheel of Time and Game of Thrones. But one of the things I think that is, again, sort of like comforting and almost like despite the fact the writing at times feels difficult to get through, almost makes the read easier for me, is that as compared to some more modern fantasy, this is a more, I don't want to say stripped down, but it's a little bit more straightforward in a way, right? Yeah. Because yeah. the story is really about this this fellowship, this band of heroes and their journey Whereas the Wheel of Time and Game of Thrones as two examples, they can get really like far flung. And yeah. pretty soon you've got so many people. So I think there's something that's really sort of gold standard about that with this story. Yeah, I agree. I want to, before I totally sign off, I want to end with something like kind of a really cool personal story <laughs> that ties into Lord of the Rings. But last December, I was in Switzerland visiting my friend, Adrian, who's getting her postdoc. And she was like, I want to take you to this really beautiful place. There's waterfalls. It's a valley. There's mountains. Snow is everywhere. So we we get on the train. We take this train to this place called Lauterbrunnen, Switzerland. And I'm walking down the street of this town and I look over and there's a statue of Aragorn in the window. And I was like, what? What? And I go to the window 
And there's actually a whole write-up about how Lauterbrunn in Switzerland inspired Tolkien to create Rivendell. And so I'm, and I read this whole thing about how I am in the place where Tolkien was standing when he started to craft the idea of Rivendell in his head. And I look down the valley and there's, you know, you have snow-capped mountains. There's waterfalls everywhere just gushing over the side into this valley. And I could see it. I mean, if you've seen the movie, if you picture it, it's it's Rivendell. And I, as a writer, to as a writer and a fan, to walk into unknowingly the place where one of the most beautiful worlds I feel like ever written was created. It was one of those like magical moments to me. I was so inspired. I was so in awe. That's so awesome. Isn't it? And it was so cool. Yeah. So I'll, I'll post a picture of that on our social media too, of me and Lauterbrunnen, which is Rivendell, but really cool. And so I don't know, somehow the magic of this story, like still, you know, permeates into my life, even though I feel like I know everything I don't. That's so cool. And oh, just, you mentioned Aragorn, which side note, I love him. Yes. <laughs> like he's my new book boyfriend. Yeah. You know, he's amazing. Like, I love that dude. So yep. I don't know yet what's going to happen to him because I haven't read book two and three, but I'm loving him in this book and he's definitely one of my favorites. So yep. yes, much love. Another great hero. Yes. And Rivendell. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want to go live in Rivendell? I mean, exactly. Like, no wonder Bulba doesn't want to leave there. Not yeah. little wonder. So, yeah, I could grow fat and old there. That would be that would be good. And Rivendell. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Well, we could go, boy, Robin, we could talk about this for like a week. Forever. I know. Forever. Yeah. But my glass is empty. And we probably do need to move on to other things. But um, yes. we will come back and talk about um, this world more for sure. We're definitely going to talk about the movies. Perhaps we'll talk about the other two books and or The Hobbit in the future. Yeah. So, but uh, we want to hear from you all, uh, folks. So make sure you get on our social media and on our website and let us know your stories about Lord of the Rings and answer our questions and check it out. Thanks for coming back and joining us in season two. Like, yay. Yes, yay. I know. Season two. Oh, gosh. You know, Robin, it has gone so freaking fast. I can't believe it. It has. Yes. So, uh, yeah, definitely wanted to thank all of the people who stuck with us from season one and also, like, welcome anybody who's new to this show. We're having a blast. We love it. We hope you guys too, do too. And it's super exciting that we are starting a second season. Yeah. And so the second season is going to be a little bit different, perhaps, in the first season. We are learning uh, as we go about what the show is really you know, about, what's going to be, and what we enjoy the most, and also what our listeners seem to respond to the most. And I think one thing that you've kind of told us if not outwardly, but through the numbers that we see is that I think you all like uh, some of the more modern um, stories and shows and movies as well as books. So we're still going to be talking obviously about books and, but also about shows that are adapted from these great works of sci-fi and fantasy, but we'll also be working in some of the more modern uh, books and new releases as well. So not being 100% from the NPR top 100 list will be branched out a little bit more in season two. And we'll also continue to bring you guest author interviews and chats with really great authors from around the world. So really this, the same, but just a slight different maybe uh, focus in our season two. And we'll see how, how y'all like that. 
Absolutely. So we hope you guys enjoy the rest of the season and cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the fun with your friends and family. Love what you heard and want the fun to continue? Head over to Patreon and become a patron of the Tipsy Nerds podcast. We love our patrons. Want a recipe for a cocktail you heard here? You can find recipes as well as show notes, episode transcripts, and helpful links on our website, tipsynerdsbookclub.com. And as always, join us next week for a new episode of Libations and Geeking Out. Cheers.